other name is worthy of our glory and honor and praise. Amen. Let's stand together and sing it. No other name but the name of Jesus. No other name but the name of the Lord. No other name but the name of Jesus is worthy of glory and worthy of honor and worthy of power and of praise. His name is exalted. Lord, it is our desire that we would give you all of the praise that you are due. Now, we have to wait and think about that for a minute. We are not capable of that. You are worth so much more praise than we could ever produce. But Lord, help us to give everything we have today in, in, in our attention, in our singing, in our praise, in our study of your word. Everything we have needs to focus on you and you alone because you and you alone are worthy of that attention, of that glory, of that praise. Lord, we just praise you and give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, amen. We just wanted to uh, drop that into the service to let you know that the Franklin Graham Route 66 tour is coming. You see the dates there. You can go on their website and learn more about that. Uh, that might be a great opportunity to bring a friend or family member who might not want to darken the doors of a church but might go to an event like that and get them uh, uh, to let them know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So please uh, put that on your calendar and be aware of that. Hey, um, take one of the white cards. We call it a connection card, and please fill that out. We'd love to know if you're with us maybe for the first or second time as a guest. And for the rest of us, please uh, use that as an opportunity to uh, give us a prayer request. Uh, let, us, uh, let us know of any anything going on in your life that we need to pray about, and we will be faithful to do just that, all right? Uh, hey, as we worship today, I've chosen a song. I, I think it's one that we've become very comfortable with and we begun, be, began to really, really love. Uh, His mercy is more. I pray that, um, just like John Newton, you can say, you know, the older I get, I may forget a few things, but I know this for sure. 
I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Amen. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is Andy, please. I just need to comment on that. I hope he welcomes the weakest. I hope each one of us see ourselves in one of those or more of those categories. If we don't, do we really understand we need God? We are the weakest. We are the vilest. We are the spiritual, spiritually poorest. That's why we need so desperately the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's sing that again. He welcomes. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. He lavished on us His blood was the payment His life was the cost We stood beneath the dead We could never afford Our sins, they are many His mercy is more And praise the Lord His mercy is Sins, they are many, His mercy is more. 
Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, it is uh, my pleasure to have some extra people behind me today. Uh, we, we have uh, not... Yeah, let's, let's, let's say thank you, choir, for being back. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I saw, I saw a post the other day that said, uh, hey, normal may not be coming back, but Jesus is. <laughs> And, and so I don't know, I don't know how, how long it's going to take to get normal back, uh, but we know Jesus is coming, and we just want to give him praise until the day he does. Amen. This song reminds us of uh, something that uh, one of our favorite preachers talks about a little bit. We've been made alive.
been made alive in Jesus. Let's read a passage about that. Not the familiar one from uh, Ephesians, but a sister passage from Colossians. Let's read it together. And you who were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You remember that great hymn, It is well with my soul, that one verse that says, My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me.
Son of God was and is and is forevermore. Amen. He is the ancient of days. We don't need to fear. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king.
Let's just bow before the Ancient of Days just a moment. Lord God, we have come and we poured out our hearts to you in praise. And now is the time to open the bread of life. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, not just so we can attain knowledge, but Lord, so our hearts would be changed. So we would walk out of here chiseled it a little bit more into the image of Jesus than when we came. That we would be a greater blessing to this world. That we'd be a greater witness to the world. We'd be a greater blessing to your people. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's open it up and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll have our scripture reading for the morning beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read down through verse 13. We did kind of an overview last week. From 11 through 22, today we'll think and pray and ask God to speak to us in the verses that we will read. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God, without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that we can address you as our Father, that you hear us and know us. Probably the most important part of the covenants of promise is that we shall be your people and you shall be our God. And Lord, we're able to call upon you. And Father, we thank you. Uh, And these verses remind us of that, that our access to you is solely dependent upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of him, we have access. We have peace. We pray to you as our Father. And you hear us. We thank you for that. Lord God, would you speak to us today? Help us all to remember today. To appreciate what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be a part of this church body. Help us, Lord, uh, over... Lord, just overthrow our thoughts and our patterns of behavior that are away from you. God, confront us with your word. 
Lord, overrule any thoughts that are not toward you and your spirit and what you want to do in our lives today in the hearing and preaching of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One way to appreciate your position in Christ and your position in the body, the church, right, and what it means to be a part of it, one way to do that is to remember what you were before you were Christians. When's the last time you just paused and stopped and thought about what it was like to be outside of Christ before you were saved and what it meant to be separated from a body? So just as understanding our dreadful condition in chapter 2, 1 through 3, helps us to feel deep gratitude for the grace of God, so also today we find that our understanding of our status outside of Christ before we were saved helps us feel gratitude for what it means to be in a new status as the people of God, as a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you ever consider the state of life from which you have been delivered? So to be reminded that we were made alive in Christ should certainly call forth praise. Amen? But also, we learn in this section from a different angle. In other words, we're looking at being in Christ and being a part of a body from a little bit different perspective. And this perspective also encourages us to give glory to God by understanding where God has taken every one of us if you're saved. So, to remember at this point should serve humility and gratitude from in us, right? So it starts off in verse 11, therefore remember. And then when you look down later in verse 12, it says, remember again. Now, I'm 51, and sometimes I have to be reminded to remember, right? <clears throat> but folks, this is not a chronological problem here in this text. Uh, we all know what it's like to start getting older, and you're forgetful, and <clears throat> things like that. And I guess when I'm 61, it'll be worse, 71, 81, and some of you are laughing because you're already there. And you know what it's like to not remember. But folks... To not remember in this text is a spiritual problem, not a chronological problem. So the reminder here is for us to remember. If you think back, how many times did Moses say to the people, remember? At least six times he's going to say it like this. Remember your former slavery in Egypt and how from the house of bondage God redeemed you with his mighty arm. Why? Do we need to remember? Because it's a motivator, right, to walk in humility before God, to appreciate who you are in Christ, and to appreciate this church body that you are a part of. Again, what section is this in Ephesians? It's section number four. So here's the major proposition that you have to take from this text. It is a contrast that's being made today. And it's a reminder given to believers of our prior alienation from God and his people and what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to reconcile us to himself, to God, and to one another. So the therefore remember construction urges readers to recall what our former lifestyle looked like in chapter 2, 1 through 10. Uh, this is a, a, a reiteration in some ways, but it's a reminder to speak on those things. I don't know if you realize this or not, but you've now just encountered the very first command in the book of Ephesians. And notice, 
It is the only command given in the first three chapters. And the command is to remember. So chapters 1 through 3 we might call the great indicative, right? Because it's just one thing God is doing after another for his people. But when you get to chapter 4, it begins to speak on the practical note of how we live this life out. In other words, you think orthodox in chapters 1 through 3, and then you live out your practice in orthodox character, right? So 1 through 3 and 4 through 6 are clearly spelled out for us, but it's just a reminder, right? Believers, keep in mind your condition before you were brought near to God. So Paul begins by addressing the deep, complex hostility and rivalry between Jews and Gentiles. You ever had a rivalry in your home? When I was growing up, it was I pulled for Carolina and my dad pulled for Duke. When it came for football, I'm a dog, bulldog all the way, and other people uh, pulled for Clemson. And we only lived 35 miles from Clemson University, 28 miles from University of Georgia. I did not like Clemson at all. And I wasn't a Duke fan either. I was a UNC fan. So my dad and I, we had these rivalries. Folks, those are fun and they sometimes can get out of control, right? Especially when you live in the state of Alabama. You, you know that Alabama and Auburn don't like each other? And actually, since the NCAA came out with this new thing that players can be uh, supported financially, but not by the university, but by outside sponsors, <clears throat> have you ever heard of Milo's Tea? That's some good stuff. It's made in Birmingham as well as Red Diamond. But I saw the other day where Milo's was going to sponsor the Auburn quarterback, Bo Nix. And the Alabama fans said, forget that. We won't buy Milo's tea ever again. Right? (laughs) I mean, all about sponsorship, rivalries. Now listen, this one we're talking about here in the contrast is important because this one's about religious, cultural, and racial issues. Okay? Gentiles... Number one, religiously, they did not know the God of Israel. They didn't know Yahweh God. So think about that religiously. What about culturally? The Jews had their culture, which involved rituals and feasts and ceremonies that set them apart as a nation. And then finally, we see the racial issue. Here it is in a nutshell. A Jew could say, we have the blood of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob coursing through our veins and you don't right you're Gentiles after the flesh so in order for you to think about this I have one heading that we're going to hit today well two but I'm just going to hit I don't want to leave you down in the dumps this morning so I have to start the second point okay but here's the deal therefore remember that you at one time okay now look down in verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who once were say it Far off. And so what we're going to go back and see is what it really meant for us to be far off. So the sermon division is remember you were far from Christ. So in the Old Testament, the Gentile nations are actually described as people who are far off. Deuteronomy 28, 49, 29, 22, 1 Kings 8, 41, Isaiah 5, 26, and Jeremiah 5, 15. If you can give all those back to me. You win the golden star. Listen, if you miss something, you need to listen to the sermon again, right? Write those things down. You've got the luxury of having it live streamed and whatever else. So again, multiple times in the scripture, we are, 
if you're not a national-born Jew, described as people who were far off. Whereas Israel was described by, by terminology near to him. Psalm 148, verse 14. So the first description of being far away or far off actually is revealed in a physical difference between a Jew and a Gentile. So when it comes to the work of Christ, we know that this physical difference has no bearing or significance on your salvation. We will find out that it has nothing to do with your skin. It has everything to do with your heart, right? But still, when Paul delineates these descriptions of being far off from Christ, the very first one he hammers is, you were Gentiles in the flesh. Do y'all see it? Therefore, remember that at one time, formerly, you were Gentiles in the flesh. Well, this is going to be a Jewish expression. Gentiles did not call themselves Gentiles in the flesh. This is what the Jews called them. So one thing it conveyed would be the nations. Anybody outside of a true-born Israelite would have been considered or are conveying the nations. But it went a little bit further than that. It actually means outsiders as well. And then if you really want to narrow it down, it referred to the heathen. Wow. Wow. A heathen. Somebody in that condition that we may say was straight up a pagan. Now this certainly is out of step with our contemporary niceness to call someone a heathen. I don't know how y'all grew up, but I was regularly called a heathen by my dad. I mean, my brother Jeff and I, we thought that was our name. Don't act like a heathen. Anybody else? Was that just a, a, oh, some of you from the north up here were called heathens too. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite shows of all time was Fred Sanford. Y'all remember Aunt Esther? How many times did she call old Fred a heathen? You know, she claimed to be very religious. And she, she talked about the Lord. But she'd say, you old fool. And then she'd say, you're a heathen. Right? That was the terminology that she often used. Well, again, remember, Israel was conscious of her unique status as a nation. And they saw their status as one being separate from anybody that wasn't a a national-born Jew. Yet early on in the Old Testament, we'll find that there was, in fact, a belief that the Gentiles could become a part of the people of God. You are to be a light to the nations. And we see some very encouraging uh, things happen when, like Rahab is saved, right? Not only is she saved, but she ends up in the genealogy of your Lord. And she was an outsider from Jericho. But what about Ruth, who was a Moabite that was saved by grace through faith? That line, uh, Ruth 2.10, Why have I found grace in your sight that you may take notice of me seeing I'm a stranger? Isn't that awesome to think about that? But after the restoration, following the Babylonian captivity... There was a huge perspective change toward the Gentiles. We call it the intertestamental time. Between the two books, or between the two canons, right? The two uh, covenants. So during that intertestamental period, a lot of skepticism grew into a form of isolation away from the nations. And they didn't even want to have any contact with anybody that was a Gentile. Couldn't have a meal with them. You couldn't go into their home. If you ate a meal with them, somehow or another they could have touched the food and you would ingest them. And that would actually contaminate you. That's exactly why Jesus said it. It's not what comes in to a man that defiles him. 
That's, what, that's who Jesus was speaking to. These Israelites who felt like they had it all together and Jesus knew better. But even Gentile proselytes, do y'all know what a Gentile proselyte is? It's, it's a Gentile who has accepted Judaism, hook, line, and sinker, and they had accepted circumcision. Even a, Jew, even a Gentile proselyte could not even go into certain parts of the temple court. So this, this was the way it was. This is the way a Gentile would live. So there was still some dividing wall of separation. It was a tremendous stigma to be a Gentile in the eyes of a Jew. It was, it was the absolute equivalent of being a heathen. If you don't believe that, listen to the words of the Lord Jesus. This has to do with, with discipline in the church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile heathen and a tax collector. Matthew 18, 17. What does that mean? It means put them on the lowest spiritual rung as someone who needs to be evangelized. So you see the strength of Gentiles in the flesh. So when Paul says this, he's referring to their actual physical circumcision. The Gentiles lacked the mark of the covenant in their bodies. What was that mark? There you go. Circumcision. So, as one commentator said, their bodies proclaim their heathen character. Because physically, they're not bearing the mark of the covenant physically. So, it literally means foreskin. This imagery from the Old Testament is seen as impure and stubborn. And it has to be removed in order for you to really love and obey God. That was what they actually believed. If you look at that, you will find it in Deuteronomy chapter 10. To be uncircumcised was to be separated from the Lord. So their outward circumcision represented their internal estrangement away from God. Right? That's the way they saw it. So Paul then says, circumcision is done in the flesh by what? Human hands. And what is he trying to do right there? Listen, therefore remember that at one time, Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What is he trying to do? He's pointing out and driving the point home that they belong to the old order of Judaism with an external feature. But what in reality are we taught in Deuteronomy 30? God was not after circumcision Physically, he was after circumcision of the heart, right? Do you know that Deuteronomy is the equivalent Old Testament book to Romans in the New? Deuteronomy is the first time that love and obedience are put together, right? So God begins to focus upon the heart. In other words, the big issue is belief versus unbelief. This is what really matters. Here's what Galatians 6.15 says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Hallelujah, right? Listen to Romans 2, 28 through 29. If you don't have time to turn there, just listen. Romans 2, just listen how Paul says this. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew... Now, folks, this is talking about all of us in the spiritual commonwealth of being an Israelite. We're, we're brought in spiritually. Listen, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcised, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, 
but from God. So you understand what Paul is saying. From a Jewish perspective, there was only one way that a Gentile could remedy their alienation from God. How was that? To follow in circumcision. But that's not the right answer. The right answer is our hearts were filled with sin. And your heart was actually in unbelief. And your heart before God was stubborn. There was once a time for all of us when we were really Gentiles in the flesh. Not because of circumcision, but because we walked in unbelief. And our hearts were stubborn against God. There once was a time when this was true. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3, listen to this. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Right? Folks, I hope you're not putting confidence in your flesh. I hope you're not thinking that you're saved just because you were born in America. I hope you don't think that because you're an American, it equals I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven. No, folks, that doesn't cut it. The only way, no pun intended, that doesn't cut it. What does is circumcision of the heart, trusting in Christ. So that's just number one. How you look so far, far off from Christ. Gentiles in the flesh. He's going to give us five more deficiencies. Let's run through them right quick. The text says you were without. In the Greek, it simply means this. You were Christ-less. Now, we know that the Jewish kinsmen were given the messianic hope. Again, Romans chapter 9. And just, just follow these words of how blessed the Israelites were. But you understand they're not true Israel unless they trust Christ. Listen to chapter 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. They were given the promise of the Christ that would come through their lineage again. But Jews, however, are still separated from Christ if they have not believed the gospel. Yet, to be separated from Christ, according to chapter 4, verse 18, is to be alienated from the life of God. Listen to it. Chapter 4, verse 18 of Ephesians. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This is a haunting expression, isn't it? Without Christ. What does it mean to be without Christ? Folks, it means that you are without a mediator between you and God. That's that's what that means. Now stop and think about that. It means that you are standing before God on your own merit and in your own righteousness. And that will never cut it. No man will ever, ever stand before God on the basis of his own merit and his own righteousness. If that were true, then Jesus died in vain. Right? So, remember Eli to his sons that were defaming the temple and not doing it God's way? Eli says to his rebellious two sons, If this was a human thing and we had a man against a man, we could ask for an arbiter or a mediator, and he could come in and speak to this situation. But you're dealing with God. And who's going to mediate if you continue to disobey? Wow. 
And those guys ended up in ruin, did they not? Job is trying to make sense of all his suffering before a holy God. And remember in chapter 10, he begins to think to himself, if I could just have an audience with him, I might could give my case and I could show my own justice. And then he stops himself on a dime and says, well, if that were the case, then who would go between us as a mediator to lay one hand on me and one hand on God? Is there anyone up to the task of being a mediator between me and a holy God? Here's what I want to remind you of. If you're without Christ, you do not have a mediator between you and God. If you are without Christ, you need a mediator. To go with a mediator is to have Christ standing in your stead. Hallelujah. I thought about this. It really means that if you're without Christ, you are without a prophet, you are without a priest, and you are without a king today. What does it mean to be without a prophet? You don't have anybody to teach you the way. You, you have no, if you're without Christ, no one can teach you the way to God. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through him. You, you need a prophet. What about a priest? I mean, l- listen folks. You, you don't need an earthly priest, but you've got to have a heavenly priest. And Jesus makes atonement for our sins. And he also, as a priest, intercedes for us. You know why you'll be saved eternally? It's because Jesus never stops praying for you. You, you need an interceder. There's only one, Jesus Christ the righteous, who can atone for our sins and intercede for us before the Father. Paul says it this way in another text. There's only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. So, finally, without Christ, you have no king. And you say, well, I don't care. I'm my own king. What a pitiful rule you have. What a pitiful rule you have. Who guides you, folks? Who rules over you? Who protects you? Without Christ, you don't know the truth and you don't have life. And at one time, this is the condition we were in. Are y'all remembering? You had no prophet, you had no priest, and you had no king to rule over you. So to live without Christ one more day is an absolute tragedy. And to die without Christ is an eternal tragedy. This was your condition. Without Christ. And this is the testimony that God gave us, gave us eternal life. And this life is in his own son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5, 11 through 12. To be without Christ is the worst condition you could ever be in. Next, you were aliens. The Bible says in verse 12, notice how it says it. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That means without God, without Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So... It really means you're foreigners. There's an alienation. And some of you are saying, well, what a big deal. I don't have a desire to be of the commonwealth of Israel. Why is this such a big deal? What difference does it actually make? Well, folks, this has to do with belonging to God. Because why? Israel was God's elect nation. They were God's chosen and privileged people. Did we not just read that? Romans chapter 9, 4 through 5. No other nation has been called God's Firstborn. It was an incredible privilege to be a part of the commonwealth of Israel. It was, it was that you would be a part of God's nation. 
as a theocracy, right? It was a nation under God. It means, it means to be a part of the chosen people of God. We might say from this text that you were actually, before you met Christ, you were homeless. You were, you were actually a foreigner. Now, I'm an American. I love my country. And I can be pretty patriotic about that. And so can you. Yet I want to remind you that when you stand before God, it won't be whether you're an American or a Palestinian. That won't matter one bit in eternity. What's going to matter is this. Are you counted among the people of God? And that's the strength of the terminology commonwealth of Israel. All other nations, all other nationalities at the end of the day mean absolutely nothing. What matters is that we are part of the true spiritual commonwealth of Israel. It's the only nation that's going to last forever. The only one. So, the ultimate feeling of our longing to belong is in belonging to the family of God, the people of God, the commonwealth of Israel. Number four, you are strangers. The word here, xenos, is where we get our English word, fear of strangers. It means to be estranged, and it means to be ignorant of the reason you're estranged. Right? That's what this means. So, the expression of the covenants of promise is a term of redemptive history. You were strangers to the covenants. Notice, folks, covenants is what? Plural. Promise is singular. So all of these covenants pointed toward one promise. And what was the one promise? The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love our material? Answers in Genesis. It it builds you through every epoch of time. To get us to understand that all of the covenants in plurality pointed to this one particular promise. And get it, folks. It says when we were without Christ, we were ignorant of those covenants. Whether it was Abrahamic, whether it was Davidic, wherever that, whatever that covenant was, we were ignorant of all that. What is the great covenant promise that underlies all other covenants? I said it during my prayer. It is that I will be your God and you will be my people. I will dwell in your midst. And so there is a promise of God's gospel. That's the only one that exists. God's gospel in his son. So in our lost condition, we did not understand the covenants. The lost man does not look to God's promise. The lost one's religion is summed up in what he does, and not what God does. It's summed up in what he says, and not what God says. The lost person is a foreigner. He doesn't speak the language, Right? He doesn't understand the culture, yet he's an expert on life. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. So he's a foreigner to the covenants of promise. Number five, you were without hope. Listen to this in verse 12. Having no hope. Think about this for a moment. Having no hope. The the covenant of promise is the actual basis of all the hope that we have. And if you're without the covenants of promise, then you're without hope. If you're without Jesus Christ, then you are without hope. Now, hope in the Bible is not wistful thinking. It is confident expectation in the very promise of God. So God's promise is the confident expectation that His word is true. And that His promises are true. These promises, folks, will not fail. So hope is created in us by Christ. Why? Because he's the hope of glory. And again, remember the in Christ formula. It's all over this text. When you're in Christ, that's where the hope of glory comes from. 
you are without Christ and without hope. Can you imagine what it's like to try to live in this world without hope? COVID-19, Afghanistan under siege. It's going to get worse before it ever gets better. And that's just on the temporal. I mean, that's just on the surface, right? Uh, Needless to say, what may be going on in your own life. Some of you may be doing this today. You actually have no hope. You look around and you think, well, this is the best the world has to offer. This is as good as it's going to get. For some of us, that will be as good as it's ever going to get. Unless you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. How many have ever heard of Voltaire? You've probably heard of him, but you don't know anything about the guy. Well, he was a Frenchman. And he lived during the French Enlightenment. And he was a writer, historian, and a philosopher. And he hated the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, one time speaking of Christ, he said, Curse the rich. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the religion it took the 12 apostles to lead. A nurse accompanied Voltaire in 1778 for the last three weeks of his life. And this atheist was on his deathbed. And she made the statement, I would not see another atheist die for all the wealth in Europe. She talked about how he cried out. The agony that he was in. He actually cried out once, I am abandoned by God and man. Folks, it's one thing to be without hope in this world. It's another thing altogether to be without hope at your death. And both are synonymous. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. If we are men who only have hope in this life, we are people to be pitied. But we know better than that as Christians. Mr. Bill Craig said to me at the graveside yesterday, uh, Miss Sandy Lyons, uh, he said to me, uh, I talked about hope out of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and Bill said, I need to tell you a story. And it's always going to be good if Bill's going to tell you a story, right? Before he met Christ, he talked about going to funerals. This is in your lifetime when you were an alcoholic, right, brother? In that time frame. And he'd go to funerals with family members, and they didn't know the Lord, and people would cry and scream out and literally try to crawl over in the casket because there was no sense of hope whatsoever. And then he met a woman named Verna. He married. And she would not leave him alone, nor giving him the gospel, right? And he would go to Christian funerals, and all of a sudden he saw a total difference between the way that Christians saw death versus the world. Isn't that awesome? That hope made a difference in his heart. Now he's a saved man sitting right back on the back row, right? And his hope is in the Lord. You understand that the skeptic may say, well, I have hope. I hope in world peace. Go ahead and keep hoping in that false hope. And it will continue to dissipate in your very presence like the morning dew. Peace will come, but it will only come when the Prince of Peace returns. And you say, well, my hope is in the goodness of humanity. (coughs) Have we ever in the history of America... Seen so much wonderful things from humanity in the last few years. We all should realize that's a baseless hope. To hope in the goodness of humanity is to hope in something that is without substance and fleeting. The only hope in this life and the life to come is in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises of our God. This hope has meaning and substance and will last forever. Finally, you are without God. The Greek expression is godless. It is to be without God. It doesn't mean here to be necessarily an atheist like Voltaire. 
Gentiles were usually far from being atheists, right? They had a pantheon of gods. What Paul is saying is that to be without God in the world means to be without the true God. It's to be without the true knowledge of God. Andrew Lincoln in his marvelous commentary on Ephesians says, this term is used as an evaluation. There's no personal fellowship, there's no personal relationship, and there's no personal knowledge of God in this individual who is without God. Sounds like Romans 1.18, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Folks, this is life without God. These are despairing terms, aren't they? Without Christ, without hope, without God. Here's the reminder. Before you trusted Christ for salvation, this was your tragic position. This was you. We need to remember this fact. We need to think back on it. You at one time were separated from Christ and the entire gospel community as well that you're sitting with today. So remember where you came from and live with a constant refrain of praise on your lips because Christ has brought you near. Which brings us to verse 13. Hallelujah. You don't want me to leave you right there, do you? Without hope, without Christ, without God. Listen to verse 13. We're just going to scratch the surface and we'll be done. Listen. But now in Christ. Hey, does anybody see the transition? What was it in chapter 2, verse 4? But God. And now we see more of a position among the church body or, or what you actually have been given by Christ with the, with the actual wording, but now. What two? This is adversative conjunction. You were one way, folks, but now this is who you are. Why? Because you've been brought near by Christ. And here's the division. Rejoice in the effects of our union with Christ. We could have said it this way. Rejoice because God has brought you near and you were far off. But now he's brought you near. He has reconciled you. So here we encounter another great but statement. There's a contrast between chapter 2 verse 4 and chapter 2 verse 12. There's a contrast of being far off but being brought near to the Lord. So the gospel, folks, is not simply good news. It's great news. Folks, in light of your condition, it's great news. The plight in Ephesians 2-3 was dead in trespasses and sins. What was the remedy? We sang it today. Made alive. That's the remedy, right? Trust Christ, made alive. The plight here in 2-11 through 12 is separation and alienation. What's the remedy? reconciled, brought near to God, brought near to one another. You know, the Bible is replete with statements about the transcendency of God. When we start thinking about being far off and being brought near, folks, do y'all realize that our God is absolutely transcendent? He is wholly other. He cannot be approached. Just, just think of the hymn of the mountain in Mount Sinai. Man, if an animal or anything touched that thing, bow! Gone. That's the power and the majesty and the glory of who God is. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits, he, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. How can we ever come near to this God? How can we ever come near to a God who dwells in his holy place? He says in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. How are you going to build a house for me? Don't y'all know this church can't contain him? The temple can't contain him. The world 
cannot contain him. How can we ever think God says that you could build a house for me? Our God, in one sense, is very, very, very far away from us. Why? He is God and we are creatures. We could say at this point that even the archangels are far from God in that understanding. But this is not the major issue of what Paul is getting to here. The major issue has to do with our sinfulness before him. Do you remember Isaiah 6? When he sees God in all of his holiness and is troubled three times for, for emphasis in Hebrew, what does he say? Woe is me. Could he come into God's presence? Not without the hot, not without the tongues from the altar, grabbing the coal, purging his lips, and dealing with his sin. Why? Because he was a sinful man and dwelt among a people that were sinful. So Paul is emphasizing your sin that kept you far off, your alienation from God, your rebellion against God. Andrew Fuller, the old Baptist, and also a friend of William Carey, said, This is alienation of heart. And it stamps all of our character apart from God. But the message of the gospel is not only but God, but also but now. We've been brought near to him. Everyone that comes to Christ and through Christ is brought near. Is this needed by Jew and Gentile? Folks, no one will ever be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter if it's a Jew or a Gentile or whoever it is in this world. Here's the thing to remember. Coming through Christ, you are welcomed into God's very presence. You have been received into God's family. You can offer him worship. God only accepts you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you're not accepted in the person and work of Jesus Christ, then this morning you are not accepted before God. We were far off. We've been brought near. And notice the terminology. When we think about reconciling uh, on the human level, we can get some mediation. Right? Think about husbands and wives that separate because of whatever differences they have. Right? You can get mediation. They can seek on a human level with two parties to try to reconcile things together. That's not gospel reconciliation. In our case, only one has the right to be angry at our sin, and his name is God. Only one has a right. God has a just grievance against sinners. We are the problem. It's my estrangement. It's my rebellion. The gospel is God reconciling himself to us and reconciling us to him on his terms. Amen? It's his terms. We can't say, well, God, let's do some mediation at this point. Let me work some of my things out on this side, and you work them out on your side, and we'll be best buddies. No, folks, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel is, is not a word on the window of heaven saying, uh, God helps sinners, or I need help. No, folks, it is God Almighty coming down and changing our hearts and lives and reconciling us back to God, right? It is the Lord God doing the work, so I will do this, and you can do this, won't, won't work. He reconciles us in only one way. What's the text say? You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what is that emphasizing? The sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross to save sinners, that is the only way mankind can be brought near to God. Period. Right? It, remi it reminds us of the depth of our sin when we think about the blood atonement of Christ. The hymn in Christ alone says it well, doesn't it? It reminds us it was my sin that held him there until 
it was accomplished. Tony Marita will end with this, says it well. Historically, Christ died on the cross. Y'all stay with me, we're going to land the plane. Ready? Historically, Christ died on the cross. We sing the hymn, Old Rugged Cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. I want to remind you that in Jerusalem, it wasn't a hill far away. People saw the Son of God hanging between two thieves, dying. Historically, this took place. But also theologically, Christ died on our behalf and on behalf of sinners. Let this resonate with you out of Colossians. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins. He took my place. And based upon acceptance, receiving Jesus, trusting Christ as Lord, believing the gospel, you understand that he gives you his righteousness. He took on your sin. And in exchange, he gives you his righteousness. We receive the benefits of forgiveness and righteousness and new life. That's not all historically, theologically, but how about experientially? We encounter the effect of the cross and Christ's work by your union today with Christ. You were way off, but now you've been brought near. Why? Because you are in Christ Jesus. C.J. Mahaney has written a book called Cross-Centered Lives. Or better yet, cross-centered life. Wouldn't it be great if we could all live like that? Live a Christ, a cross-centered life. And in this book, he talks about addressing his young son, Chad, and explaining to him this particular verse, or verses like this. It was through his blood that we were brought near. And here's what he says. He says this to his son, Jesus, God's perfect righteous son, died in his place for Your sins, Chad. Jesus took all the punishment. He received all the wrath as he hung on the cross. So people like Chad, look, and his sinful daddy could be completely forgiven. Wow. Should we hold out the cross to our children? That that, that the, the kids named Chad or whatever your name might be, Logan or Tegan, whatever your main name might be, we recognize that it took just as much of the blood of Christ and his sacrifice to save kids, and it takes just as much to save daddies. We deserve the punishment, but Jesus Christ took it all. Look, folks, don't ever forget what it costs for you to be brought near. Folks, we ought to come into this church. We ought to praise God for the fact that we were far off but praise God for the sacrifice of the Son who's brought us near. Amen. Look, you may be lost today, and if you are, I've given your description. Without Christ, without hope, without God. But today, you can be brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be brought near by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to be a church that praises you. Lord, a lot of people today say, well, don't don't give us all this blood talk. It's too violent. It causes us to be squeamish. Lord God, help us to glory in the cross. It was literally penal substitutionary atonement. You bore the penalty we deserved. God, thank you, Lord Jesus, for bearing my sin so that I could be saved. 
Lord God, if there's someone under the sound of my voice without Christ, without hope, without God, would you open their eyes of understanding and their hearts? Circumcise their hearts today and move them to the place of belief. God, may they trust Jesus. You are the only way, truth, and life. May they put their confidence and trust in Jesus only to save them and be the Lord of their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing of that blood. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they were many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. One more verse. Think about this again. Look, between you and the Lord, what would you say? Are you without hope, without Christ, without God? Are you? Or can you say, rejoicing, Lord, I was far off, but you brought me near through your sacrifice. You can be brought near today. Are you trust Jesus only for salvation? Amen. Amen. Don't let the invitation go past. It's a tragedy to be without Christ. And it's a tragedy in the world. It's an eternal tragedy to be without Christ at death. Let's sing one more verse. Let's sing what riches of kindness. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Just looking out over the congregation, this may, looking at the balcony, may be the most we've had back in here since COVID. I don't know that for sure, but praise the Lord you were here. The next couple of weeks, we'll start moving in toward uh, the church and what we are as a body. And let me just say thank you to many of you. I drove up uh, this week and... Gabe was getting his lawnmower out to cut the church's grass. And I, I see, I go to a funeral, and Mr. Ron's Sunday school class are all gathered around Jim to love him and be there for him. Even though Miss Sandy passed away back in June, 
there are so many wonderful things that we see taking place in our church with people serving and loving the Lord. And I, I want to say to you, I saw Rick. Nat and I got behind Rick Lamb bringing that bus back toward the church, picking up people that may need to be picked up from brought. Look, folks, what you do for Christ is never in vain. So I'm encouraging you the next few weeks as we preach through the Word of God to pray about what our mentality should be and how we're serving Christ in the local church, right? So uh, to God be the glory. Uh, in that regard, Miss Pauline Pulley went to be with the Lord a few days ago. That service will be uh, tomorrow, uh, visitation at 9, funeral at 10 at Barnes. So please uh, pray for Miss Dortha and Dean and, and the entire family. And uh, we, we would covet your prayers. All right? <sighs> I'm tired. <laughs> Y'all ready for another sermon? Ready to go home? Uh, I know you are. I know you're ready to go home. All right. Hey, God as we you. dismiss, let's sing together, none above him. Before we do that, though, let, can I give you just the 15 seconds of the rest of the Voltaire story? Fifty year, Less than 50 years after he said the Bible will be irrelevant and all the fools that wrote it, the, Geneva, the Evangelical Society of Geneva used his house as a distribution center for Bibles and gospel tracts. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hand. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand.